0: Good evening and happy Tuesday. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. I will be one of your
1: hosts tonight. My name is Yemin Chen and with me is my co-host. Hi there. My name is Roger Hudson. Today we're joined by a very special guest today. Uh, He's been newly appointed or elected, should I say, the chair of the GradCast Committee here at Western Ontario, Ariel Frame. Welcome, Ariel. Hey. Long live the king. <laughs>
2: so Ariel, you're no, 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 no. elected, right, elected.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm, I'm winking right now, I got gotcha.
1: you. So Ariel, second year PhD student in
2: neuroscience. How are you enjoying the program so far? Um, I'm I'm really enjoying it. Like it's been, uh, it's been just as good as I expected You know, like we came and uh, checked it out. I came from Vancouver to check it out and I was really pleased by what the program had to offer, and it's provided everything that I expected it would.
0: And more, because it allowed you to discover GradCast, the most excellent and best podcast show uh, uh, from the Society of Graduate Students here at the University
2: of Western Ontario. (laughs) That is is true, that is 100% true. I don't know that it's a product of the neuroscience program directly, but it is a product of being at Western, and it's something I'm really glad that we have. And you would not trade it for the world. Not for the world. Or else.
1: <laughs> so you said you came from Vancouver to visit Western, uh, check out the campus, check out the program and things like that before you came in?
2: That's right. Yeah, I, uh, I I, mean, for anyone who is considering grad school, that's something I would always recommend is like really do your research and remember uh, when you're considering a supervisor, they're interviewing you, but you're interviewing them just as much. Hmm. You need to be careful who you're with. Now that I've been in for two years, I know plenty of people already uh, that were, you know, blindsided. They didn't realize what they were getting into, and their supervisor and or lab is was not a good fit, and they're not happy. Uh, so you don't want to be put in that position. Well-being is really important to me, so I try my best to uh, put, situate myself around people that are... Chill and cool, and, and I'm gonna get around, get along with, right? So <laughs> I came to make sure that people I'm gonna be working with are people I could tolerate, like living around and working with for five years. <laughs> so what did you eventually
0: get yourself into? What uh, what is it that drew you to Western here specifically?
2: Uh, I'll be honest, actually, the first thing that uh, the first, the reason I came, like I thought about what, I mean, I knew. Uh, A number of people who wanted to go to Western. I heard of Western, so it had some sort of some notoriety uh, in Vancouver already. But I didn't never like specifically thought of Western in terms of neuroscience until I googled like top neuroscience programs in Canada, and it came up on a list probably like by McLean's or something like that. Mm. So that prompted me to investigate. But, but. What you need to do after you do your Googling, because plenty of people are going to Google, what should I do with my life? What's next? Right. What what program is good? After you do that, you check out who's there. And it turns out Western has a really good neuroscience program. Actually, was like one of the first neuroscience programs to ever occur in Canada. But nonetheless, Hmm. uh, the program had some... um, It was kind of famous because of the incredible imaging facilities in Robarts, of which many people are doing brain imaging as part of the neuroscience program. And that's that's the Robarts Research Institute? That's the one. That's right. So Robarts Research Institute, uh, as part of Schulich, has done a lot of incredible neuroscience work that's recognized worldwide. So for that reason, Western has been recognized as kind of a leader when it comes to neuroscience. And so I thought, you know, let me check it out. And there was a number of people working on things Uh, mostly I looked for keywords like Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative disease, because that's what I'm interested in. Okay. Uh, and I found people who were interested, who were working on those sorts of things. Um, I emailed those professors, I set up appointments, I found out from the, who the head of the program was, and I came for an open house to find out what the program's like, what the school's like, and to have interviews with those professors. That's really cool. So,
0: in addition to that, um, I've heard that recently- You were one of the top 20 finalists in the three-minute thesis competition, and uh, this being a competition where graduate students have about three minutes to basically explain their research and the impact of their research to, um, like, a lay
1: audience. And research that occurs over the course of, some cases, four or five years, like you were saying earlier.
2: Right. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I I personally think science communication is really, really important, and... um, uh roger and i had a, a an incredible lesson today and mm-hmm. why that's important because we had a, a guest speaker a brazilian professor who uh uh who spoke on the topic and and spoke very eloquently for <laughs> half an hour as to why uh, science communication is important uh for our our work and for the whole world so uh as an advocate for science communication um, three-minute thesis is something that I tried to, you know, do myself, but also ask other, you know, try to get other scientists involved in. Uh, And it was actually, um, it was a really, I don't know, eye-opening sort of thing. It was fun to do. Uh, It was a good learning experience. I'd say I'd recommend it for any graduate student, uh, to be honest. Uh, And in terms of, you know, summing up your work, this was the main uh, hang-up. So I'd I'd tell people, hey, Uh, you know, I think science communication is really important. Maybe you should come on, uh, come and do a three-minute thesis. So they said, three minutes? I can't do in three minutes. What are you talking (laughs) about? That's ridiculous. I'm like, I already could talk for an hour about my work, and then I wouldn't even not graze page one. Like, that's impossible. Uh, And to that I say, you don't have to say everything. You have to find a way to summarize it because, I mean, I think the motivation for the, why three, why only three minutes? Why isn't it the 10 minute thesis, right? Why isn't it the 30 minute thesis? It's three minutes because uh, you need to find a way to, to break it down that simply and that concisely. And that is, that's part of, that's part of the skill to it. Right. And that's, that's actually really important skill to have. um, Because one of the key aspects to science communication is, not just the science part but the communication part <laughs> and communication is is means you need to determine what your audience is going to understand what they're going to be interested in so they're motivated to hear what you're saying and come out with a su- kind of an understanding not just hey that was some nice jargon that you just you know f- <laughs> threw at me for the mm-hmm. past 10
1: minutes for sure and I, I'm sure most graduate students can attest to this anytime you bring up oh I'm in graduate school I do research the the question gets popped oh well what do you do in graduate school research and there's often these times uh, with family or in an elevator and an uber you name it where you gotta succinctly summarize your research and I'm sure these skills that you've built throughout the uh, months long competition have really served you well and you'll continue to use those in the future three-minute thesis everybody
0: Yeah. So first of all, I'd like to congratulate congratulate you for, you know, coming in the top 20 of, uh, <laughs> of uh, three-minute thesis competitors all across Western. And I think this might be an excellent way to introduce your work to everyone out there in GradCast land who may not have been able to or had the opportunity to catch your presentation at the 3MT
2: the the long and the short of the talk which i hopefully you can see it on youtube presented much better and in actually 3 minutes is that i highlight how y- there's an analogy between the energy required for the neurons in your brain and the energy required for an engine and how it, you know you, you you can get fuel for that engine in various ways in the brain your engine could kind of be making its own, own fuel and it won't need any provisions from anywhere else. But um, in the brain, it may be working whereby other cells, namely glial cells, another important cell type in the brain, are providing the fuel. Um, so I, I hi- in highlighting that analogy, uh, I wanted to show how my work, looking at a particular fuel, a small molecule called lactate, may be transported from one cell type glial cells to neurons. Uh, for the use in memory. And I'm using Drosophila melanogaster, fruit fly, as a model organism to do this, using various uh, genetic techniques to manipulate it. And then the last thing I highlight in the talk is how you can definitely uh, transmit your findings from flies to... uh, To humans. You can't necessarily do it directly. You're never going to give a drug to a fly, alleviate its memory deficit, and then say, here, Roger, try this. You're not going to do that. But you you will try it on flies, prove that there's a specific mechanism of action, and then try it on a a mammal that might be more similar to us. And if it's pharmaceutically uh, processed, uh, in a similar manner and it has the same effects on behavior, then you can go ahead and actually move from a rodent or a dog or wherever they, whatever sort of mammal you would use uh, to a human. So there's di- there is a direct conne- uh, path from going from fly work to humans. And the reason you're able to do that that I think people don't necessarily uh, appreciate, and this is something that, again, that I put in a little mention in the three-minute thesis, mm-hmm. is that flies have a brain. They have a brain. People don't necessarily know this, but they have a brain. It can, it constitutes, it has in it uh, some of the same cell types. It has the neurons, it has the glia that I spoke about, and so pretty much fruit flies are just little humans. They're they're almost identical to us. They're like the same. They're little humans, except for little, with wings. Basically, now <laughs> they're not the same. But what they are is they're sixty percent similar when you look at the genes. They okay. have sixty percent of the same genes. So that's one of the things that I highlight is that they're actually not only interesting to study and help us understand something fundamental, they're actually a very useful, useful model for anything you want to learn about humans as well.
0: What exactly are you talking about when you're, when you're talking about fueling the brain? Fueling the brain.
2: Okay. Well, um, I mean, we're looking. we're talking about here is carbohydrate metabolism, and that's a really fancy way of saying breaking down sugar. That's really what all, all we're saying here.
0: Like the stuff that you put in your coffee.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know where you heard that, but that's a really good analogy. Yes, sugar is an important fuel in, 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 a, in a certain formulation. Not exactly like, like the sugar in your coffee because uh, it, it's, it's just like kind of double sugar and it's too much. Uh, uh, double um, carbohydrate molecule. Six carbon ring. I don't know. So there's a uh,
1: specific way that the body. Yeah. So br- yeah.
2: Molecularly, that. there's there's a little bit of a difference, um, but nonetheless, that is like the main fuel that we that we that we look for, and like this is why you might look at like people who are measuring the sugar in their blood for if they're like determining if they have diabetes or not. That's like okay. your blood sugar level, right? You've yeah. heard people say, "Oh, what's your blood sugar?" Right? That's mm-hmm. what they're talking about. They're talking about this fuel that's circulating, uh, and 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 the type of molecule there is actually a, a smaller. Than, your, um, than the sugar in your, in your sugar cubes, and it's called glucose. And mm-hmm. it's mostly been thought that glucose was like the obligate fuel for your neurons. And mostly glucose is what's going to be used by your neurons and by like most of the cells in your brain. Turns out this other little molecule that's actually a breakdown product of glucose, you can break down glucose into two of these, mm-hmm. uh, is lactate. And lactate has kind of got a bad rap in the past because it was mostly found—it was kind of smaller, harder to determine how much we had of it. And uh, it was only evident when it was way, way too abundant. And when it's way, way too abundant, you get acidosis because it's actually lactic acid is the same as lactate. And if you Hmm. have too much acid— uh, circulating in your blood, then that's not a good thing. <laughs> so, th-
1: this lactic acid, that's the same uh, substance that I guess uh, professional athletes would uh, build up after a heavy game of sports or something right. like that. Yeah. Oh, it makes you sore.
2: That's is right. that what it is? I think that's what we're talking oh, about. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm i not like very familiar with that, but I do know that like when people, I've heard people say that, you know, oh, my muscles sore after yeah. it's buildup of lactic acid. we got to like get rid of it there. Oh, uh, yeah, because this- your muscles are very. Yeah, I mean you can think of your muscles are like neurons except their goal is not to transmit information but to move you, fair enough. And that that requires a lot of energy too. It's like one of the only other cell types in your body that would actually compete on like the for who needs more energy scale. So your brain, your muscles. Your your neurons and your muscles, yeah.
1: Okay. I, I guess in, in terms of you're using the Drosena, Drosophila melanogaster, did I get it right? You the got fruit, it right. The fruit fly Drosophila
2: melanogaster.
1: So why would you know? Rather than just going straight to humans to, to measure the lactate, what what's the benefit of of looking mm-hmm. at fruit flies? What what can you guys right, actually yeah. gain from that? So
2: as much as I would like to uh, genetically manipulate Yemen so that he's <laughs> smarter, I can't do it to Yemen because they they wouldn't ethically allow me to do that. Uh, as much but as Yemen with flies, be. I'm yeah, allowed to fly. do it. With flies, I'm allowed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> And this is the usefulness of flies, is that I can specifically look at the molecule, the enzyme that that's required to make lactate, and I can either get rid of it in specific cells or I can add more. And you can't do that as easily with other model organisms, and you just straight can't do it in humans. Hmm. Not yet. I mean, China's getting pretty good at doing gene, genetic, gene editing stuff with humans and stuff. Maybe they're going to do it, but uh, as it stands now, that's not
1: ethically allowed so i guess where the ethics are a little bit more laxed
2: uh, yeah yeah
1: so you're saying i have a, ch- a chance
2: <laughs> you certainly do have a chance
0: okay yeah. but yeah. so are you actually um filling around with fruit fly brains and trying to make them smarter what what is it you're doing with these uh these model
2: little flying organisms um so luckily so that. What's good about um, so yes, a number of organisms can be genetically modified. What's great about uh, fruit flies is that they can be very easily genetically modified. So I mean, there's a number of ways to do it, but with fruit flies, it's really as simple as this: you open up your Amazon account slash not an Amazon account, it's it's a it's a website where you can order flies just like you would on Amazon, and you find your genetically modified fly and you buy it for like ten dollars. And then you buy another one for $10, and this then you like breed those fly? together. Uh, they send you a number of them in, little, in a little okay. vial, uh, just enough so that it survives. And if they don't survive, then they'll send you more. But then you just breed them together, and you select the right flies that, have, that look the right way to be sure that they got the gene from one and the gene from the other. And you can tell this in a fly just by looking at like, its eye color, how many bristles it has on its back. And you can look for these little phenotypes, these little overt characteristics, to determine their genetics. They're markers of of certain genetic characteristics. So I just hmm. order two flies, cross them together, and look at them, and I can tell they're genetically modified. And then I can double check after the fact at protein levels and, and and DNA levels. But but really, it's as simple as that. Order two flies and cross them. So you're essentially like
0: breeding flies, similar to how people would breed dogs to get like a, a like a pug, or well, a greyhound, or something like that. E-
2: yeah yeah yes I am I I, I am breeding. Specific, you know, I have to look at a certain fly with a certain characteristic and breed it to another fly with a certain characteristic and see mm-hmm. what the f- characteristics are of the resulting fly. Um, but the reason I'm doing it that way is because the parent flies actually don't have any ph- phenotype at all, any effect at all genetically. They're not manipulated. It's it it takes the two genes together to cause the manipulation. I won't go into the oh. molecular mechanism of that, but suffice it to say, it's the result of two transgenes, the two genes coming together that causes actually a change in, in expression, change in protein, that change in amount of your protein. And that's different. Just interestingly, it's different from the whole breeding thing in that in breeding dogs, you're actually doing artificial selection. You're doing a little Evolution, (laughs) you're you're aiding in the evolution of a specific adaptation in a dog.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this actually begs, I think, two two questions from me, anyways. Um, So first, you would only see these effects in the offspring of these flies, is that correct? So, so so would would it be possible that? As you get further and further generations down, you'd see different effects, or these mutations would take a different form. And Uh, and then I guess the second question, just to to lay on top of you there, um, is there any possibility you're creating some kind of uh, mutant fly that will possibly take over the world? Superfly. Superfly.
2: I'll start off by saying 100% it's possible I'm creating a a mutant (laughs) fly that could take over the world and become a big issue in the world. That's why generally in fly labs you... Be, you are very careful not to let your mutant flies release. I'm almost sorry I asked that question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, not to worry anyone out there. These are usually very, very benign things. I'm just saying that there are genetic changes in these flies that could go into the wild population and change things ecologically. I'm not an ecologist. So I won't really speculate on that, but I know that it can. It can cha- And we have if you go look outside areas where they have fly work, you, you go sample a random fruit fly and like the building across the road. And and you do the genetic checks. Like they are more than likely you're going to have some uh, genetic alterations. Then your other flies, you go in the field. Like uh, you know, couple ou- drive a couple hours away because they some of them escape. You know. Are uh, you serious? Yes, I am. But wow. usually, very very m- most likely benign. Let's keep in mind. Huh. These organisms have—we've been working with them, and genetically modifying them for like a hundred years, like more than a hundred years, and nothing's come of it so far. So, not too much to worry about. And that's like millions of generations. They, they of fruit flies. Maybe fighting. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, will, I will, yeah, I'll comment on what you said about like you know, like I told you that I bred two flies that have different genetic, uh, genetic alterations, and I got a resulting fly that actually. Had both genetic alterations, but also also a change in the amount of protein, the actual change in, like, like I said, it might have more or less lactate production because the sure. enzyme is different. Okay. Whereas in the, in the original flies, they don't have different lactate production. So what happens if I breed that fly again? Will I get even more changes in lactate production? Well, no, it's not an additive effect. Okay. It's not that every time you breed it, you get more and more of it. Okay. There's one, gene- one gene there and you just get one copy from your mom and one copy from your dad and then you have both of them. So if you then, you know, breed with your sibling, which is what you would be doing if uh, if I wanted to internally just breed them again, uh, then then all I'm doing is saying, okay, now I have the chance to get I could worst case scenario I could get both so I got let's say A from your mom, A from your da- uh, B from your dad. You need AB to be to be genetically okay, altered, okay? okay? So I have AB uh and my sibling has ab uh so now i we we have we have kids because we're flies and they don't care <laughs> about siblings um and uh there's a chance now that my siblings my my progeny could have two a's one one a for me one a from the sibling sure. and two b's so yeah and the first generation you there's a chance like one in if you do the genetic test it's like one in uh six uh one in eight or one in 16, like it's a smaller chance of getting it, but you could do it. You could get it. You could get uh, a okay. double the effect because uh, you'd have, you'd you for all those technical geneticists out there. You'd be homozygous for both genes. You'd have both, uh, but that's as much as you'd get. You can't have it amplified anymore unless you had it in a location where it got duplicated. And now we're talking about evolution. Uh, it would take like so many generations, but there, if you really wanted to do that, you could just manually, multiply the gene and keep doing it but no, not really needed
0: right so if I remember my high school genetics you, you could calculate these probabilities with a, with a punnet square
2: is that right? you can absolutely calculate it with a punnet square shout out I'm to Gregor to. Mendel my favorite
0: Austrian monk with his pea uh, plant experiments wait was he a monk or a shaman? I believe the correct terminology is monk oh interesting he's catholic i believe. I'm sorry if I was being offensive to anybody out there <laughs> All right. So you have your genetically modified flies, Ariel. What um, what do you do with them? I test their memory. All right. So Ariel, earlier you told us that flies have brains. Uh, now you're telling us they have memory too. Uh, how do you, how do you know that? How can you tell?
2: Um, I look deep into their eyes and I ask them, "Can you remember what happened yesterday?" <laughs> That's and A they... lot of eyes. <laughs> yeah, the multiple eyes. Uh, no, I don't look deep into their eyes. I do watch hours and hours of footage of flies, of male flies trying to court and copulate with females unsuccessfully. And that's how I tell. Uh, but I'll have to explain as to why I do that. Mm-hmm. And I'll go through ha- what the paradigm is like. We don't give shame here, Ariel. You do what you like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, I take a male fly and I give it a female fly. It's this male fly basically is its whole life. It's had no no female partner. It's no, not done any courtship. The courtship is how they how they copulate. The male comes up to the female, does a little song, does a little dance, literally does both of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then if, if she likes it um, and she allows him, then then he can copulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he tries this. So he hasn't had any experience with this uh, courting deal his whole life. But we give him a female and he tries his best. But he fails because... Little does he know, this female has just been in an orgy. A, t- a huge orgy. And I've given her lots of males. And she's done. She's totally done. And she t- does not reciprocate at all. She doesn't reciprocate at all. And he's there stuck with his first chance his whole life that he's got his whole life for seven hours. Uh, and fails miserably for that entire seven hours. And he's super not okay with that at the end. Uh, and he shows that by not trying as hard anymore. He just doesn't do the courtship. Doesn't do the song, doesn't do the dance, doesn't follow her, doesn't lick her, doesn't do anything, mount her, doesn't do any of the things that I would see a fly do if they would want to court uh, because he knows it's just not working. I don't check in that seven hours. I know that he's learned not to do it. What I do is I wait 24, I take the female away and I wait 24 hours later and I want to see, does he remember what he learned? Does he remember when I'm, when a female smells like she's just been in an orgy, don't try quarter her. Just don't. If he remembers that, then he's not going to court. He's not going to court her. So I mm. video that attempt for 10 minutes, and I, I quantify how much did he try in the 10 minutes. If he tried like 90% of the time, that's a .9. 90% courtship index. And I can determine that he's, uh, he's tried really hard to court her. So but how does this he work? He will have it diminished if he remembers, and I compare that to another fly that's never not got the training, didn't learn, nothing to remember, is going to court very high. Reduced level of courtship means they remember. Well, that, that, that's certainly a very valuable explanation <laughs> for, for uh, how
1: you uh, test the memory in the flies, but how does this relate back to lactate and your genetic modifications of
2: the flies? Um, really, the the nature of the test and the fact that it's courtship, is not the most important part. It's just a robust test of memory. Okay, okay. So it's a good test to test memory, but the point is that memory may actually require uh, the use of an energy substrate such as lactate. So hmm. uh, this has been, there. I mean, we don't know about this in flies, but we know that there's some evidence in vertebrate mo- models like chickens and rats and mice that that yeah that lactate might be important in certain areas of the brain they're important Mm. for memory because when they gave a drug that prohibited the cells uh that release this lactate their memory is worse so we're looking at it from more like a genetic aspect we can change the production of lactate instead of giving a drug that prevents the production of lactate and see does it affect memory and if it does then we have some reason to believe maybe it's actually lactate that's involved all right. Well, thank you very much, Ariel. You
0: uh, you heard it here, folks, on GradCast. The super secret sex life of fruit flies. That is absolutely thrilling work, and I feel like secret no more. Secret no more. That's right. Uh, exclusive expose. It, is there a video of this? Um, that our listeners could maybe access at some point if they're, um, if video, they're curious.
2: Video of flies? Uh, of fly, uh, fly courtship. Yeah, yeah, These fly orgies yeah. you can talk if you about. If you search Drosophila courtship, there are like hours, hours and hours of footage on YouTube uh, and plenty other video sites. Right out there in the open? Yeah, right out there in the open. Wow. Um, I will give a shout out to, well, first of all, I didn't mention that my supervisor's name is Robert Cumming uh he's in the department of biology and that's who, where I'm doing my work and I'm doing the fly work in collaboration with Ann Simon who's provided the flies and the the room and the facilities to do the do the work but the person who's been helping me a lot with this assay because he knows it very well is Jamie Kramer who's also a professor I believe in biology but his office is in anatomy cell biology point is if you look up him he has he has a number of videos that he himself has posted uh, with these courtship videos. And you can go take a look. It's not as um, crazy as you might think, but it is interesting to see how how these sort of flies do their little song and dance. Maybe we could learn something.
1: To Ariel, our chair and savior, j- just the chair, sorry, of Gradcast. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I know I've learned uh, a fair uh, a lot today during this episode. Uh, Yemen has been our uh, other host for today. My name is Roger. Uh, you can catch us every Tuesday at 6pm on CHRW that's 94.9 FM Uh, you can check out full episodes of Gradcast at gradcast.ca if you'd like to get involved with the show at all or guest at all, uh, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students, uh, thanking them once again, have a wonderful week everybody, see you next time